Welcome to Dungeon Designers Guild. I am your guild master, Stephen Leviathan. You are listening to Season 1, Episode 12 of DDG Pod, where we welcome to the Guild Hall a designer who has been in the role-playing industry since almost the very beginning of the hobby itself, and found himself both captain and namesake to role-playing's first expedition into science fiction. First, however, we at DDG Pod feel that some explanation of the recent guild hiatus is in order. Those of you who have been following the show since the beginning may wonder why, given the long lapse in time between this episode and the last two, we still find ourselves in the first season. This show was originally intended for 20 consecutive episodes per season, and in the first few months after premiering, DDG Pod was on track to adhere to that schedule. Unfortunately, over the last year, that became more difficult, and we were unable to maintain the same momentum, resulting in a months-long, unintentional break. It is our sincerest hope that we will be able to begin releasing episodes more regularly again from here on out, which will involve catching up on a backlog of recorded interviews like this one. So please keep in mind that the conversation you are about to enjoy was actually recorded over a full year ago, and luckily is full of timeless gaming stories that are well worth hearing from a game designer who was there when the magic of Dungeons and Dragons was first written, and decided to see what would happen if he took the game into space and then irradiated it. So without further ado, let's get on to our main event. On Dungeon Designers Guild, we have encountered one of the first ever players of the world's first role-playing game, Dungeons & Dragons, an original TSR designer who, with one small step, took role-playing on a giant leap to the stars, James M. Ward. Jim, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for inviting me. The intro was way too good for me. <laughs> uh, nonsense. I probably should have come up with something better for you. <laughs> I mean, many would describe you as a living legend, yeah, okay. perhaps. You know what? I trip over that word every single time people tell me that, and they tell me it a lot. I'm not a legend. I was just managed to be there when it was important to be there, and I lucked out. So I, I thank the Lord for all of those good, lucky times. Well, that's great to hear, and it's good that you're humble about it, but I don't think it should go understated. You've made a significant impact on the role-playing community, and I think that... That I agree with. I did that. <laughs> Excellent. So we agree on that. So then, Jim, what lost colony are you calling in from? Elkhorn, Wisconsin is a marvelous little rural town in Wisconsin where it's very close to Utopia. The girls are smiling, and the guys are manly, and uh, we get steak every other night. And fish on Fridays? Fish on Fridays, yes. That's an older tradition, though. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, when we first spoke, you had described yourself as a Wisconsin boy, and I forgot to mention that I'm a Wisconsin boy, too. I mean, right now I'm calling you from New England, oh. but I spent the majority of my life in the Fox Valley. Oh, nice. Yeah, great place. Absolutely. Okay, so living in Alcorn, I do have to ask, have you ever come across the Beast of Bray Road? Uh, you know, interesting story. Let's start with an interesting story, shall we? Yes, absolutely. My darling wife lived on the Bray Farm that was on the Bray Road. And so the Beast of Bray Road started being posted in the newspaper and blasted hunters would come on the Bray Road and shoot up my father-in-law's cattle. Oh, jeez. Used to drive him crazy. I would think so. So I think we've experienced more than we want of the Beast of Bray Road. So no sightings to report? <laughs> no sightings from him, but his uh, nephew said he saw him a couple times. We suspect it was a large wounded fox that was having trouble uh, walking on its front leg. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't sure. I've never actually talked to an Elkhorn resident, so I know the... Oh, there we go. The movie was horrendous, wasn't it? The sci-fi original one? Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's real bad. You can only kill so many lovers in cars before it gets a tad repetitive. Yeah, yeah. I, I watched that thing years ago, and it was not palatable. Nope. Nope, it wasn't. <laughs> There is a good one, though. It's actually not a horror movie, but there's a production company called Small Town Monsters that does these hour-long documentaries covering specific cryptids or recapping particular strange events. Uh -huh. and one of them is The Beast of Bray Road. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's worth checking out. They don't actually try to convince you of anything so much as just give you a good idea of the area, the claims made, and let witnesses tell their stories. Cool. That said, they kickstart everything. Their budgets aren't massive, but they do what they can, and they do a good job, I think. They're good guys. So, all right. Well, are you from Elkhorn originally? Born and raised. Been here almost 70 years. Nice. And it's fairly close to Lake Geneva? Eight miles away. Okay. So see how lucky I was. Eight miles away is Lake Geneva, the birthplace of D&D, &D, and the birthplace of TSR Incorporated. So I was able to drive for 20 years over to TSR every day and work. It was just a wonderful situation for me. That does sound wonderful. What was that, like 15, 20 minutes for you? Yeah, not even that, 10 minutes. It was probably fairly appealing too, I bet. Oh, it was joyous. I'll tell you, that. looking back at it in history, that was definitely my Camelot. Awesome. Well, let's start there then. How did that all come to be? How did you meet Gary and how'd you end up at TSR? Okay, this is my favorite of all of my stories to tell. I'd love to hear it. So the time is 1974. Young Jim Moore just graduated from college with a teaching degree. And every Tuesday, I would go to Lake Geneva to the bookstore. And on Tuesdays, they would get in their fantasy and science fiction books. So I'd come over there and buy as many of the fantasy and science fictions as I could. Those days, the books were a quarter and 75 cents. So it was a pretty nice deal for me. So anyway, I'm over there one Tuesday, and I'm grabbing books off the shelf. And I see this guy beside me. He's a big, rough dude. And he's got a blue jean jacket, and he's got ripped blue jeans. And this was in 74, before the time of ripped blue jeans. And he had one of those wallets that's on a great big long chain. So the wallet is in his back pocket, but the key fob is in his front pocket. And he had a scraggly beard, and he was picking books too. I didn't think anything of it. So I got to the end of the book rack, and I had seven wonderful books in my hand. They were things like Conan the Barbarian and, and Andrea Norton's Judgment on Janice was one of them. And so seven books. And I looked over, and this rough dude had the exact seven books. 
So we thought that was hilarious. <laughs> we laughed at it. We started talking, and he said his name was Gary Gygax, and that he had a game that would allow me to play Conan the Barbarian and fight Set. And I have to tell you, I was hook, line, and sinker the second he told me that. I got invited over to his house, and a couple weeks later, I went over there. And on his back porch, I learned how to play D&D with Brian Bloom and Gary and Ernie, his son, and a bunch of other Gary players. And it was just a blast. Every Thursday, we'd go over and we'd play Dungeons and Dragons. And oh my goodness, it was so much fun. And about two months into it, I said to Gary, Gary, you absolutely have to have a science fiction version of this. And he looks at me and says, you know, Jim, I agree, but I don't have the time to write that. I'm writing lots of other things right now. Why don't you give it a try? Well, Gary had no idea how good of a writer I was. He knew how good of a D&D player I was, but he gave me the chance to write a science fiction version of D&D. And so I said, absolutely, I want to do that. And so Metamorphosis Alpha was born. And I didn't want to do everything D&D did, so there's a lot of things that are different from D&D, but it's listed as the first science fiction role-playing game, and that came out in 76, I want to say. And that started me off on writing for TSR. So at that time, did Gary and TSR already have offices, or was it still being run out of Gary's house? Oh, good question. There was three people, Don K., Brian Bloom, and Gary, and Gary ran out of his basement, and Brian came over from Illinois. And Don Kay ran out of his garage. And they'd already done Cavaliers and Roundheads. And they had just printed the first thousand brown boxes of D&D. And oh my goodness, isn't it unbelievable what a brown box set sells for right now? Yeah. It's incredible. It's incredible. Thousands and thousands of dollars for what? Something you could have paid $10 for and gotten in on 74. Pretty amazing. It is amazing, especially considering you probably shipped some of those yourself out of a garage. So when he first hired you on, what was the agreement? Were you hired on just as a writer or were there other duties that were assigned to you? Yeah, okay. So I had to pay the bills for my family, of course. So I, was, I had a teacher license. So I, I had to go teach in Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin. It's about three hours away from Elkhorn. But I told Gary, Gary, the first time you can afford my salary, I want to come work for you guys. So he said, fine, fine. You know, he had no problem with that. So from 75 to 80... I would come down to Elkhorn for the holidays and stay at my parents' house or my in-laws' house, and I'd go over to Lake Geneva and we'd play D&D or Metamorphosis Alpha. And so finally in 1980, Gary gives me a call. Jim, how much you making now, buddy? And I told him, I'm making $9,700 a year, Gary. He says, fine, I can pay that. Come on down, you're hired. And so in June of that year, we drove down and found a house and I started to work at TSR for 20 pleasant years. Wow. Obviously, I want to talk more about TSR, but before we do, I would like to know, what did you teach when you were at Prairie du Chien? History and English. I had a double major. Awesome. Uh, literature focus, or were you teaching writing as well? Oh, I did everything. Did grammar, did short story writing, did short story listening. It was a very rural community, so I wanted to do stuff that was different. And plus, I had that science fiction bent, so I got myself 20 X-1 audio tapes. And we listened to X-1, and then I'd test them on it after the tape got done. Just great fun, and everybody loved it. X-1 is, is so cool. You can still get those online if you look, and the stories are just wonderful. X-1, I'm not familiar. Oh, my goodness. It's just delightful. It was a 30s and 40s radio show. 
the stars they hit on it were Shatner's and Nemoy's and all those stars doing radio programs. And the stories are fantastic. You can actually go online on X-1 and listen to them for free. Plus, you can also buy discs of all of the audio, which is well worth the price, let me tell you. And you'll enjoy it immensely. They're all 25-minute shows, and they're just a blast to listen to. And is it all science fiction, or is there a mix of different genres in there? It's all science fiction, and just great. X minus one, yeah. You'll enjoy it, I guarantee it. I'll definitely have to check it out. Okay, so you'd actually established your relationship with Gary before you went to go teach. Had you also written Metamorphosis Alpha before you got your teaching job? I wrote it from 74 to 75. So while I was teaching, usually in the summers I write most of it. But yeah, I wrote it during the teaching period of my life. And being three hours away from Lake Geneva at the time that you were teaching, were you still able to find people to game with? Oh, yeah, that wasn't a problem. The neighbor boys were all in their teens, and they were very interested. So I had lots of gamers flocking around my house. Too many, as a matter of fact. And then there were all my students, and my students were all country boys. So they'd never heard of diplomacy or risk or any of those fun games. So a bunch of them would come over, and we'd play and have fun. Nice. So I was the cool teacher. Yeah, I was the cool teacher at West Grant. And they couldn't have been much younger than you at that point. You were just out of college, right? Right. Yeah, I was in my early 20s, and you know those guys were all in their teens. And at this point, you would have had both D&D and Metamorphosis Alpha to teach them, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I had my beautiful brown box that I still have somewhere, but I can't find it. If I ever find it, I'm going to sell it for (laughs) $50,000. Yeah, hopefully it's not like waterlogged in the basement somewhere. Yeah, hopefully. Boy, you know, the prices are ridiculous. My DDs and Demigods original sells for five dollars to (laughs) $8,000. It amazes me what people are paying for those old TSR products. Just amazes me. I mean, could you have imagined at the time that this game was going to become as popular as it did? Oh, not at all. Not at all. Yeah, it has to be pretty amazing in retrospect. Okay, so even though it wasn't full-time yet, you were still working for Gary while you were teaching out in Prairie du Chien? Oh, yeah, all the time. I helped him produce all the three books, the Monster Manual, the Player's Handbook, and the Dungeon Master's Guide. I remember distinctly, yeah, I think it was the Dungeon Master Guide that listed the gems and powers of the gems. And I said, Gary... You can't do that. And Gary says, why can't I? Because I told him people would grab gems and use them for their character's powers. And you didn't want that to happen. You know, he had like pearls healed you and and amber let you trap things. You know, he gave a special power to every gem. And he didn't really want that. He really wanted that if you wanted something that trapped things, you used amber and you magicked it. That's what he wanted. But that's not what he said. So I got him to fix that and a couple other things. It was fun proofreading them. I wasn't the greatest proofreader in the world, but I could spot things that were wrong in the game. So his original intent was that these gems would be spelled components. Yes, exactly. But he hadn't written them that way. He had written them that you pick up a piece of amber and you can automatically cage something in the amber. Well, that would have been way too powerful, of course. Yeah, that would have easily become problematic from a storytelling and game design standpoint. So that was some very good advice. Okay, so you're helping Gary proof the original game, and of course you're playing with him when you're able, and at some point you mentioned to him that there should be a sci-fi version of this game, and he gives you his blessing to go and write it yourself. So could you describe for us where you decided to go with that concept then? Because Metamorphosis Alpha isn't just a sci-fi version of D&D, it's more specific. Yeah, that's a great question, okay? So I had read lots of novels that dealt with colonization starships going wrong. Robert Heinlein has one, but my favorite one was Starship by Brian Aldiss. And it dealt with a colonization starship that went wrong, and you were living as a mutant in the starship. And it just caught my imagination. And I said, that's exactly what people want to play. So 
I wrote Metamorphosis Alpha, and it got called Dungeons and Dragons in a space can. <laughs> yeah. And so it turned out good. I did the mutations that I saw in Starship, and I made up a bunch of technology. And pretty much all the technology I made up in 74, we have right now in reality. So that was pretty strange. <laughs> and then the mutant creatures, people really loved designing a mutant, designing a mutant with powers. You know, wizards have their spells, mutants have their mutational abilities. And people just love putting together characters like that. Gary had like eight or nine mutants that he liked running in the game. You know, interesting fact about Gary, he never got to play as a player when he was designing D&D and building on the trademark he always had to run the games and he wanted to play and so metamorphosis alpha gave him the chance to be a player in a game and he loved it he would insist when we came down for the holidays that i would run metamorphosis alpha for him and his group so that he could play in the game and he was a great player i only killed him once in 40 years wow yeah did you play metamorphosis alpha with him for that long well, yeah as long as gary was alive i'd come over and play the game with him wow and i do have to ask when you say gary never got to play D as a player you don't mean ever right Eventually. Eventually, I mean, when you have a multi-million dollar company and you have 300 workers, you're going to be able to squeeze in some playtime. <laughs> he did, this is kind of fun too. He did a contest for the best DM at TSR because his ego said that the best DM must be working at TSR. And so myself and Brian Bloom and Gary all were players, a group of three in the game and the differing designers and editors who DM'd ran games for us. And then we judged them on their skill as a DM, which was a lot of fun. And Gary got to play a lot of games. So that pleased him. So we were all sitting in his very plush office. Oh my goodness. Gary had the plushest office. You wouldn't believe. And taking it easy every, I think it was Wednesday afternoons, all Wednesday afternoon, we played D&D to choose the best DM of TSR employees. I've wondered about that. How much gaming took place at TSR on a regular basis since that was your oh, product? You know, that's a very good question. When I became vice president of the company, I insisted and management hated this. Upper management above me hated this, but I didn't care. I insisted every Thursday afternoon they must play other companies' games. Because I wanted my people to kind of spread out and broaden their ability to look at stuff and to see how other people did it. So, yeah, well, they played a lot of games. We played a lot of our own games. We had a lot of Buck Rogers playtests. We had a lot of top secret playtests. So, yeah, there wasn't enough playtesting. There was never enough playtesting. We always wanted to get stuff out so, you know, the basic profit line could be held. But we did playtest most things. Okay, so Thursday afternoons you would play other people's games. And I've also wondered about that because obviously you guys were first, but it wasn't long before you had existing war gaming companies making RPGs and new companies cropping up everywhere. Well, yeah, and... we had lots of competition. Everybody got in doing stuff we didn't do. So, you know, the FASA people did Battletech and there was Champions and Toon. There was Toon. So they all did role-playing games. Games that we weren't doing. And so I insisted that my people play those games. And I think it was a healthy, good thing for them. I got yelled at several times for it, but I did not care. I thought it was a good idea. I mean, what could have been the harm? I only see a benefit from that. Uh, yeah, okay. You're not thinking like an upper executive profit margin. That's a whole afternoon that could have been making products and getting out more product. You're having them play games? That's <laughs> not good for our profit margin. And I would calmly explain to them, that it made them better designers and better editors, which it did, but they didn't see the reason for that. They had hired people expecting them to be good. They didn't need to be better. So management didn't think that they could 
gain anything by looking at other people's work at all. Exactly right. But they were totally wrong as far as I'm concerned. I don't do well with authority. (laughs) (laughs) So they would tell me to do things and I would refuse to do it or I just wouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any examples that you can share there? Sure. I'll tell you the ending example. Okay. The time is 1997 and Lorraine wants to sell TSR. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, my wife just woke up and she said it was 96. But anyway, she comes to me in my office and she says, Jim, you have to fire 20 editors and designers by next week. And I said, Lorraine, what are you talking about? And she said, yeah, you have to fire them. Just give me the names and I'll take care of it. And I said, Lorraine, no, these are the geese that lay the golden eggs. You can't fire those guys. What about anybody in accounting? What about anybody in any other department? I mean, we had five purchasing agents. We didn't need five purchasing agents. We had like 17 people in accounting. We did not need 17 people in accounting. She said, okay, you have to fire these people. And so for three months, I argued and argued, tried to come up with every single excuse I could possibly think of and to no avail. They wanted them fired. And after a while, they wanted them fired instantly. And I said, no, no. So since I'm not firing them, I quit because they were going to make somebody fire them and it wasn't going to be me. And so I left TSR, you know, I left the company I love the most, probably not the brightest move in the world, but that's what I did. Well, but I think that's a perfectly respectable decision. I don't think anyone would fault you for making that choice. Oh, my wife might. (laughs) Fair. Okay. We had to go out there and find new work, which I had a great reputation. So I was able to get work right away. Where'd you move on to then after TSR? There was a company in Arizona who did Babylon 5 and Tomb Raider. They did collectible card games and I helped them make all those products. Babylon 5 was very successful. Tomb Raider was very successful. And then I went on to other companies. I still work with uh, Troll Lords out of Cincinnati. They're a wonderful company. I work with Goodman Games. I really like those guys a lot. And there's a group, Fireside Creations, down in Florida. I'm headed up by Stephen Lee. And he's a genius. He's a better design man than I am, I think. We put together an amazing role-playing system. And so that's out there selling pretty good. So yeah, I work with different companies now. And every once in a while, somebody else will give me a call. And and I'll tell them my standard fee. And they say, okay, thanks. And I don't get called back. Because I'm expensive. I'm the high price bread. Well, I mean, deservedly so, given the amount of experience you bring to the table and your history and overall track record. I do have lots of huge hits. So yeah, that's lucky. for My resume is sparkling. I have three different resumes. I have a one-pager, a three-pager, and a 20-pager. And even the one-pager is pretty sparkling. Is the 20-pager numbered with like a little polyhedral D20 in the corner? Yeah, yeah, really, it should be. But you know, I've written, you know, over 100 games. I'm probably up to like 190 or so different products. So I've written a lot of stuff, and that's not even counting the novels and the short stories that I've written. Yeah, I mean, it goes without saying, you've got an incredible bibliography, which we should delve more into here. But while we're on the topic of card games, I did want to ask, didn't you work on the DBZ game? Dragon Ball Z, yeah, I did. Made them $30 million. Jeez. Yeah, I know. And then TSR, this is kind of a funny story too. Okay, so Wizards of the Coast comes out with Magic the Gathering. It's a little hit at Origins. It's a huge hit at Gen Con. So I got a couple copies because I've always liked to look at the competition and see what they're doing. And so, first of all, the game was horrible. The beginning game was not good at all. The decks were terrible. The rules were terrible. The rules were an eight-point type. They just didn't do a good job. Now, today, they're doing a wonderful job. So I can't fault them now. But then it was awful. And so I brought the decks in to Lorraine and the other VPs. And I said, this is a big deal. We want to do a game. And she says, no, we don't. And I said, no, we really want to do a collectible card game. It'll make us a lot of money. And she says, those guys will be broke in four months. And I said, you're wrong, Lorraine. And so 
went for six months, and suddenly Magic the Gathering was selling better than D&D, which that cannot happen. What's wrong with that? And so they said, okay, go ahead and do a card game. So a bunch of us, Steve Winter, me, Zeb Cook, Michael Bro, came up with Spellfire. And Spellfire made $25 million for the company. But I couldn't go all the way. Magic the Gathering had a special program for the retailers. You run our game every weekend. We'll give you rare cards to give out as prizes. We'll give you a box set of the cards. And we will give rankings to the winners. That was a huge promotional deal and it worked great. It got all the stores to play Magic the Gathering. And I said, we should do that very same thing. And they said, no, we don't want to spend that money. We're making good money now without spending it. Well, naturally, they got bigger and bigger and we got smaller and smaller. And they actually bought us in 97 so that Spellfire wasn't competition anymore. So let me tell you this sad story. So the early 70s, 7071, Avalon Hill and SPI become huge companies and they make military simulations. So if you want to do something from historical period, like the invasion of Normandy or Alexander's conquest of Europe and into the Far East, if you want to do something like that, you went to these companies and you bought these marvelous games, 50, 60 bucks, hundreds of little tokens little square tokens, paper tokens, and big maps. And oh my goodness, they sold great. SPI became a multi-million dollar company. Avalon Hill became a multi-million dollar company. Only one problem with that. It took hours and hours to set up, days to play, and hours and hours to take down. So that was a problem, but the war gamers loved it. Oh my goodness. You know, what would happen is they'd start setting up the game and they'd talk about what they want to do during the game. And they'd start playing the game and they'd talk about what was happening during the game. And then they would take down the game and they'd talked about what they should have done during the game. They shouldn't have charged that front. They shouldn't have used the cannons here. In other words, they just had fun talking about the gaming experience. But hours and hours and hours and days and days. Up comes TSR in 74-75. We have a game that plays in an hour. We have a game where there's no setup time. We have a game where there's no takedown time. We have a game where you can get with six or seven friends and have a blast. And what happened is we outsold those historical war games. We put them out of business, really, which is a sad deal. And so for all the 80s, we were number one. We were top of the heap. We sold way more, like five or six hundred percent more than the other companies. Then comes the early 90s and Magic the Gathering comes out. Game plays in 20 minutes. The game has rare cards that if you collect them, you can sell them for hundreds of dollars. And the game has a very nice audience and a very nice tournament program. So that knocked D&D right off the fence. They took our sales. I mean, it still sells. I mean, D&D still sells, still makes millions of dollars, but we don't make the 60 and 70 and 100 million dollars that we made in the old days. So it's kind of the evolution, you know, and I I can't help but wondering what's going to bump good old Pokemon and Magic the Gathering off the list. But we'll just have to see, won't we? Yeah, it will be interesting to see. I mean, there's been some contenders and both those games have ebbed and waned in popularity along with the rest of the industry. Obviously, D&D's fluctuated a lot in popularity too, but I think there's more D&D players out there now than ever before, actually. I have to agree. I have to agree. Yeah. And I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on 5th edition, but there's certainly some things that I've come to enjoy about it, and I understand why it's so popular. Well, you know what? They did a great job explaining the game. 5th edition is the best at that. But I know 1 and 2E by heart. I don't have to consult the rules to play those games, which is really convenient for me. Have you had a chance to take a look at some of the OSR games that are out there? Yeah, they're okay. I mean, I, I don't mind them. I've made my own systems now, and so the people who pay me money insist that when I go to conventions, I play the ones I made. The, so the Troll Lord boys are coming out with a product called The Warden. It's a 680-page book on Metamorphosis Alpha. 
Cool. And it's wonderful, really. It has all 17 decks. It has 16 in-between decks that we never had before. And it has a dome. And the illustrations are beautiful. The maps are beautiful. It's delightful beyond words. And it's a product that you're going to be able to play with for the rest of your life. Because, you know, you can play any game. You can play Star Wars with this thing. You could do any science fiction game with the Warden. So Troll Lords expects me when I go to conventions to do Metamorphosis Alpha and play up the Warden. I've got for the Fireside Creations people, we did a thing called 77 Lost Worlds. Wonderful storyline. And that's a science fiction game. And also, using the same system, I'll tell you about that in just a second, we did Dragon Scales, which is a fantasy version using the same system. Now, I hope you just love this. I use a deck of cards instead of dice. And I can teach you the game in a couple seconds. Red cards are good. Black cards are bad. Now you know how to play the game. And do your players just have their own decks of cards then for those Yep, as well? absolutely. When I go to conventions, I hand out decks. And if you want to hit something, you need a heart. And if you want to defend against something, you need a spade. The game plays really fast, really easy. And I've gotten a lot of praise for the system. And you have that in fantasy and sci-fi, you said, right? Yeah, Dragon Scales is the fantasy version. And 77 Lost Worlds is the other version. And when you have an hour and 12 minutes, I will tell you about the storyline for 77 Lost Worlds, which is amazing. Stephen Lee designed an incredible storyline that I grabbed and ran with. We put out about three years of products and we're just breaking the iceberg of the original story. And there's going to be tons more to go. There's going to be 77 worlds to go. So anyway, the Fireside Creations people, you know, they want me to run with decks of cards. They want me to run Dragon Scales and 77 Lost Worlds. And of course, Goodman Games did a bunch of my Metamorphosis Alpha and did some new Metamorphosis Alpha products. And they want me to run Metamorphosis Alpha. So if I went to a convention or ran an OSR game, I'd have 10 or 15 people yelling at me. (laughs) So we can't do that. Fair enough. So you're still running Metamorphosis Alpha, you mentioned, and it itself has gone through, pardon the phrase, a few metamorphoses. Yes, yes, it has. Yeah, it's got five different versions out there. Yeah, which is amazing. So we've talked about the original version, which came out in 1976. Mm -hmm. Could you quickly run us through the versions that came after that? Yeah, you really should have told me you were going to hit me with this question. I can get it, I think. So, Metamorphosis Alpha came out. Then TSR did a line of games, and another Metamorphosis Alpha 2 Omega came out from TSR. And that would have been... Oh boy, I want to say 86, 87. Okay. Then when I left TSR, I put out another Metamorphosis Alpha. And I wanted to do three different versions of this. I wanted to do the ship version and then a creature version and then a technology version. But my company didn't last that long. So I did the ship version that came out. And then the fourth version was a hardbound book that Mud Puppy Games did. Jim Wampler and his people did it. And real nice book. Oh my goodness. It's got everything in it you can imagine. And then Goodman Games did it. A, uh, I don't know exactly how to describe it. It's a museum quality hardbound book on MA that not only has the rules, it has all the articles that were written about MA in it. And Goodman Games sells that. And then Jamie Chambers did the last one just two years ago. So that's it. That's the group. Don't ask me any more hard questions like that. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I guess that was a little bit unfair. Uh, Would you mind fielding a few questions about the original mechanics? I'd be happy to tell you, yes. Okay, so the original book, which I don't have a copy of, full disclosure, was it based on White Box D&D? No, no, no. I deliberately tried to make it not D&D. So I used three six-sided dice for most things and a 20-sided die for combat. I wanted to move away from D&D. I wasn't bright enough to do it because, I mean, come on, there's D&D. It's the only role-playing game out there, and they're asking me to do another role-playing game. 
wow, do you think I could make my own totally new system? No way in the world. So it parallels D&D a lot, but I, I tried to purposely not do what D&D did. But what was the particular reason you didn't want to just take the mechanics and map them into space? Yeah, that's a very good question. The reason was I looked to the future and I said to myself, maybe I want to do something with this game later on. And if I mirror D&D, TSR would own it and they don't own it. I leased them the game. So I have it now. I own it. It makes me very happy. I don't own Gamma World. That makes me very unhappy, but that's just life. Yeah, that is unfortunate. About Gamma World, it's good news about Metamorphosis Alpha. I was going to ask how difficult it was to get the rights back after you left TSR, but as you just explained, they never owned it to begin with. No, they still could do whatever they wanted to it. But when they moved to Washington, there was no interest in doing the game at all. So a couple of my friends that worked in the game design department got together, went over to the lawyer and finagled for me. So they sent me a nice letter giving me permission to own the game, lock, stock, and barrel. It's good to have friends in high places. Yeah, that was very nice of them. And also kind of surprising that Wizards wouldn't have tried to maintain any claim to the franchise that they had. But there were a lot of TSR products that weren't adapted by Watsi and are either somehow still alive and well or have gone through a resurgence in the last 20 years or so. And today we see a lot of companies being bought just for their intellectual properties. So one would have thought Wizards would have wanted to do something with all those games, especially given the great variety that TSR was making. Yeah, okay. So at TSR, you know, we did a lot of different campaigns. We did Ravenloft, Dragonlance, Akadim. We did a bunch of them. And that's because when you're fishing, you want to use different baits to catch different people. So Dragonlance, we toss Dragonlance out there. It instantly catches the attention of the women because there's female heroes and villains in the book. So that worked out very well. We tossed out Ravenloft because some people love horror. They just adore horror. And that's why Ravenloft, the module, sells for $490. Boot Hill captured the Western fans. So each one of the games was designed to capture the interest of a different group of people. And it worked great. We had all of those genres in there. Yeah, and obviously in the case of Dragonlance and Ravenloft, Wizards has reprinted some D&D campaign settings for some of their versions of D&D. As you mentioned, though, you had left TSR before Wizards had acquired the company. Watsi was trying to buy it, but I didn't know that then. And so I quit just before Watsi picked it up. Okay, yeah, and we're starting to get some of the other TSR D&D settings back in publication, but some of the games, like Boot Hill, we'll probably never see again. I did have Jeff Grubb on for a previous episode to discuss his Marvel phase rip game, and he indicated that because Watsi didn't maintain the rights to the system, They were now kind of lost in a legal ether. Speaking of Jeff, he also had some great stories about TSR himself, but he told me specifically to ask for your story about using chits instead of dice. Oh, oh my goodness. (laughs) That is the dice story. Okay, this is kind of a long one. Here we go. Go right ahead. Young Jim Wards is working in the sales department, and he's in charge of inventory. So he buys the boxes, he buys the dice, he buys all the stuff that we make. And I don't have a problem with that. In fact, I enjoy doing it. And I make sales graphs, and my bosses didn't care about sales graphs. But I wanted to know how the game sold. You know, I found out that in the first three months, 90% of the modules sell, and then it takes months and months for the rest of them to sell. So we have dice that we have to put in the D&D box set every month. And we're getting 100,000 polyhedral dice. 
from Hong Kong every month to put in the box sets that are done over in Beloit. Patch Press did the box sets. So it takes three months for Hong Kong to deliver to our door 100,000 dice because it has to go over water and then it has to go through customs and then it has to go overland to our warehouse. Three months. And so I was ordering five months ahead. So for 100,000 boxes in May, I had to order in early January. No problem. I had it down pat. I was just like a machine. Kevin Bloom, and don't you cut any of this. I don't want you to cut a single word. <laughs> Kevin Bloom comes into my office and says, the vice presidents have decided that we're going to make our own dice. So you can stop ordering dice from China. And, you know, young, innocent Jim Ward, just new to the business environment, was very worried about that order. And I went to my vice president, Will Niebling, and I said, Will, if something happens and the dice don't get made, we're going to be out of luck. Will says, you know, Jim, when you get a direct order from a vice president, you have to do it. I said, okay, Will. So I did order one more set, saying that I'd already ordered them, because I was just scared to death that we wouldn't have enough dice come June. But I didn't disagree with the idea. I thought it was a great idea to make our own dice dice molds and make our own dice if we could do it. That's just natural. That was saving us a lot of money. I think we were paying, I want to say we were paying eight cents a package of polys, you know, and a hundred thousand times eight cents is a lot of dough. And we were doing that at the beginning of every month. You had to pay in advance. So it gets to be the three month out time. And I go to Kevin. I said, Kevin, are you going to have dice in three months? Because we're going to need them. And Kevin says, yeah, I'll have dice. And I said, okay, Kevin, thanks. And I went back to Will, Will Niebling. And I said, Will, you know, he says he's going to have dice in three months, but I didn't see any dice. And so Will went into Kevin, says, Kevin, you know, it's important that we have those dice. Our sales depend on it. Yeah, no problem, Will. I'll have those dice. He says, let me see what you've got right now. And Kevin opens up his desk drawer. This was told to me by Will. He opens up his desk drawer and he pulls out something that looks like popcorn kernels with numbers on them. So he didn't have dice yet. He didn't have dice in any way, shape, or form. So I said to Will, Will, can I order another 100,000? He says, no, you can't. You were told not to. So it gets to be the last month and we're going to not have games if we don't have dice. And I send out a memo to all the vice presidents, much against Will's orders. And I explain the situation to him. I explain that, you know, right now we're not going to have dice for boxes. What are we going to do? Kevin comes storming into the office and he rips up the memo in front of my face. It says, Will had dice. So we get to the last month and we don't have dice. And so I went to Gary and I said, Gary, we don't have dice. And Kevin kept saying we'd have dice. We now are three months out before we'll have dice for our basic 100,000 boxes sets. And Gary goes, what? He was really angry. He goes storming into Kevin's office and he asked the same thing. Kevin, how are the dice coming? Oh, they're coming great, Gary. Let me see them. Kevin opens up the drawer and he pulls out the exact same popcorn with numbers dice. And he glares at Kevin. He gives him a good talking to. And then he comes into my office and he says, Jim, you order those dice as quick as you can. Order three sets. And then you keep ordering them month after month. And you don't stop ordering them until only I tell you to stop. I said, yes, sir. It was one of the happiest days of my life. (laughs) We still have the problem of three months of basic box sets without dice. And I don't know who thought it up. It was a bloom. It was one of the blooms. I don't know who. But they thought of doing a cardboard set of numbers to simulate the dice. So there was a set of red ones. I don't remember the colors, but there was a set of one through four for four-siders and one through six for six-siders and eight-siders and ten-siders and twelve-siders. And you were given a postcard that guaranteed that if you turn in this postcard, you'd get a set of regular dice. But until then, please play with these cardboard chits that are just as good. Well, yeah, I know! 
So people would put the chits in cups and they'd draw them out instead of rolling dice. And it wasn't just as good. But we did have one fantastic side benefit that really turned out good for us. We wound up being able to sell in prisons. Prisons can't... <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Prisons can't use dice, but they could use the cardboard chits. So we started selling hundreds of games to prisons across the United States. It was pretty good, actually. So it was the only benefit that came out of that. Kevin got his only written reprimand, and from that day forward, he hated me. So, hey, that's life. I got my dice finally, and he really made a horrible mistake in saying that they would have dice, and eventually they did have dice. And let me shift into an even another story. Please. So we're making our own dice now, but you have to use a crayon to draw in the numbers. <laughs> Nobody really minded. They look kind of shoddy, but we had dice. But we needed a name for the package, and we couldn't figure out what to name them. So we started talking about different alternatives and encounter dice and quest dice, and it came down to dragon dice. Oh my goodness, that's a great name for the dice. And that's, you know, kind of they fight dragons with them. That's a great name. So we looked for it, and the trademark was taken. Oh, dang it. Trademark is taken. But we said to ourselves, maybe we can buy it off of these people. And so we sent our lawyers to find out who owned the trademark. And it turns out TSR owned the trademark. <laughs> I know. So we got to use dragon dice on our own dragon dice. It was pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Corporations, go figure. <laughs> so something like... I mean, do you know why you own the trademark? Was that just no, something? I, have, just... I haven't the slightest idea. Someone <laughs> thought it was a good idea, so they did it. In those days, we trademarked lots of things. Okay, interesting. I'd love to see the list of things that TSR trademarked. Oh, yeah. I mean, most of the monsters in the monster manual aren't copied, but like five or six are. Like Beholder is copyrighted. So if you use that in your game, you get a cease and desist letter. Right. Beholder is a lithid. Yeah, yeah, there's five or six. Yeah, yeah, a few originals. And obviously, you know, you can't copyright centaurs. No, no, you can't because that's out in literature. Anything out in literature, we can't grab. Which makes sense. So if we could revisit the dice briefly, I had heard about the crayon being included in the box sets. Did the dice that you ordered from Hong Kong originally come with the numbers already painted? Oh, yeah, no, they were pre-painted. They were good dice, except it was cheap plastic. So all of my 20-siders from those days are round balls now and don't roll at all. The plastic would wear out. Even on the four-siders, the plastic would just chip off. Huh. Yeah. We used a much harder plastic, and then after a while, we figured out how to ink them in, too. Okay. Do you know whose idea it was initially to just throw a crayon in the box? Uh, yes. That was Kevin Bloom's genius idea, because he couldn't figure out how to put ink in the dice. You weren't making them yourselves in Lake Geneva, were you? Yeah. It was a town near Lake Geneva. I don't remember where. I think it was Burlington. Did you find a company there that could do it, or did you buy your own space? No, we bought our own space. We had our own molds. We pushed them out on a regular basis. And they sold great as a package of dragon dice. Excellent. Yeah, and of course, there's something satisfying about rolling physical dice, as we all know. Chits just wouldn't have the same appeal, I don't think. Really? You don't say. <laughs> well, and then as a quick aside, I do want to ask, do you yourself play online ever? Yes, I do. Every Friday afternoon. Nice. Okay. And so when you do, do you roll physical dice in front of you or do you... I have a marvelous dice roller. Someone gave me a Metamorphosis Alpha dice roller. It's a unique, you know, the dice rollers that you drop it at the top and it rolls down the, a channel and comes out at the bottom. Yeah. Someone was very nice and made me a Metamorphosis Alpha dice roller. Awesome. I absolutely love it. Okay. So you're using that and physical dice. You don't do any of the sort of click to roll stuff? Uh, no, never ever. Unless I do my Dragon Scales or 77 Lost Worlds and then I draw cards. Yeah, I only bring it up because I don't find click to roll to be very satisfying either. I much prefer physical dice when possible, even when playing online. 
On that note, though, obviously you have a lot of great TSR stories to share, and thank you very much for telling many of them to us. But since you brought up your custom dice roller, would it be all right if we swung back to spend a little more time on Metamorphosis Alpha? Yeah, as much as you want. Okay, excellent. So getting to the setting a little bit more, you said that you based it on a novel by Aldous? Brian Aldous did a book called Starship. Okay, and was that the primary inspiration for Metamorphosis Alpha? Well, it was one of them. I've read lots of colonization Starship books. Okay, and I know that we've touched on it a little bit already, but how would you briefly describe the setting of Metamorphosis Alpha? Okay, it's a colonization Starship that goes to City Alpha, It's supposed to be a a three-and-a-half-year mission, and they run across a radiation cloud that had never been detected before. And so the captain had a choice. Go around the cloud and take another two years flight time, or go through the cloud with your force fields full and hope for the best. Well, he picked the wrong thing. (laughs) He went through the cloud, and the radiation got into the ship and did horrible things to everything. And so it killed most of the people, it mutated most of the plants and animals, and it drove insane all of the artificial intelligences. And so 300 years later, you start the game as one of the characters that first has to learn you're on a starship, and second has to learn where the controls are for the starship, and third, you have to get the ship back on course. And so 45 years later, for the first time ever, Ernie Gygax was playing a Goodman Games Metamorphosis Alpha module, and the ship got set back on course. And so now I'm thinking, if I ever get a good two years, I will make a planet version of Metamorphosis Alpha where they land. Nice. All right. So you've got all these people and weird mutants living on this ship, and these populations have been trapped so long that they've known nothing else. They know no other world but this ship. Most of them don't know it's a ship. Most of them just think it's a world, because on every deck, there's the sky up above and a sun that rises and sets. Each deck is 50 miles by 13 miles, so there's a lot of space to move around in. So yeah, most of them just don't know it's a ship. And these decks contain all sorts of biomes, right? Yes. You have an ocean deck, you have mountains, you have all kinds of stuff, right? We have Every single geological feature, deserts, jungles, oceans, swamps, you name it, we got it on the ship. 17 levels. And did you have a science fiction explanation for why there's a sun on every deck or how that works? No, no. Many of this stuff is just off the top of my head. I said to myself, you know, they're on a long mission. So they're going to plant plants and, you know, they're going to want to hunt and they're going to want to do stuff that normal people do on the earth. So I have to give them things that make their environment normal to them. And so the effort was, you know, that every deck had a sun and moons at night and clouds and stars just to make the environment normal. You can't see the deck walls. The deck walls are, are hidden. They look, you know, they look like more land. Okay, but one would eventually hit the deck walls. You could hit the deck walls and then it appears a little bit, but when you hit a wall, it kind of looks like you're looking at a mirror. Okay, interesting. And so as far as the tech level in the game, obviously the ship, the warden itself, is very high tech, but the people inside of it have resorted to living very low tech lifestyles in these environments. Is that right? That's very true, except as time goes on, see, this is why I don't have levels in Metamorphosis Alpha. Your characters don't advance in levels. Characters advance in knowledge. Your characters learn to work the devices of the ancients. And so you're exploring a level and you discover a great big room filled with laser rifles. And you have to figure out a laser rifle because, you know, if you don't know what a rifle is, it isn't obvious. But eventually you'll figure it out and then you'll have a powerful weapon to use. And so there's lots of devices of the ancients. I have a couple of pages of them in the rules that you just have to discover how to use them. And then you become a more effective character. 
on the ship. Okay, so would you say that advancement is through acquisition only for the characters? Yes, well, yeah. I would have to say yes, but I don't, wouldn't call it advancement. I, I guess your abilities increase with more knowledge. Also, radiation is still bad news on the ship. And if you die from a blast of radiation, there's a percent chance that you'll mutate instead and gain a power. And so that's kind of fun for people to do. Gary would often go through mild radiation areas to mutate his character. <laughs> so it's either death or mutation? Yeah, it's death or mutation, yep. And you said you usually didn't kill off his character? No, no, I only killed one character in the 40 years that we played. That's amazing. And you said it's a percent chance of mutation versus death. Is that rolled by the referee? Yes. Yeah, the game master. Okay. And does that use a D percentile then? Yes, that was a D percentile. Yeah. Okay. So I know that we said it was mostly D6s that we're working with here, but are the rest of the D20 dice at play in Metamorphosis Alpha? Just for combat. Okay, so you'd mentioned using a D20 for combat before. Yes. Do we see different dice used for different weapons then, like in D&D? They'd have different D6 damage, or they'd just do specific damage. I really like that. I have Vibro Daggers and Vibro Swords, and they do a specific amount of damage, 12 points or 30 points. So you don't even roll dice. If you hit, then you do that damage. I put that in all my games, actually. I like it better than everything being a chance roll. Okay, so then to clarify, a player would only need a D20 and a few d6s is that right yes sir but lots of d6s lots of d6s okay when you play the game a lot you usually have 20 d6s would you ever be rolling that many at one time for your constitution if your constitution is 18 you have to roll 18 d6s for your hit points wow okay and actually that's a great segue into our next topic would you mind describing for us a little more about the character creation steps for metamorphosis alpha so you're either a mutant a pure-strain human or a robot. There's radiation resistance. And that's something every character has? Yep. Radiation resistance. Constitution. That's used for your hit points. It's also used to survive poison. There's dexterity. There's intelligence. Only for humans, there's leadership potential, which allows them to have followers. So if you're a human, you get those. If you're a mutant, you're allowed to roll on the physical and mental mutation charts. And usually that's random. If the referee is feeling really nice, then they get to pick. And that's for all humanoid mutants. If you're a plant mutant, there's a whole set of plant mutations that you roll on. Lots of people love to be plants. Love to be plants. <laughs> oh, mental resistance. That's the one. You get mentally attacked lots of times. Are there lots of psionic creatures or characters? Oh, yeah. Lots of plants and creatures that are psionic. So we never use the word psionic, though. Oh, sorry. I meant psychic. We just give them specific mental mutations, you know, like control and charm and mental blast. There's a good 40 mutations in the rules and then goodman games came up with a really great mutation booklet from ma awesome and so if you are playing a mutant how are your specific mutations determined during character creation you know you, you roll a 52 and that 52 tells you a specific mutation that you have you put it down you get two mental and two physical usually okay and again that's on a d percentile yes Sounds good. Did you have any favorite mutations from the game? Life leech. Love life leech. That sucks hit points away from a surrounding area if they don't make their magic resistance. So that one's lots of fun. That's the one I like the best. I mean, there's a couple other ones that are really good. Precognition is fun, where you see a couple of seconds into the future. But I don't usually play mutants. I usually play pure strain humans. I think they're more fun. Robots have to obey them. And pure strain humans use equipment better than everybody else. Because, you know, the equipment was made for them. How is that bonus represented then mechanically? Pluses to figure it out. Okay, but even if you choose to be a pure strain human, you can still mutate. Yes, unfortunately, then they aren't pure strain humans anymore. 
So you control a group of five robots in your character party and you go across a mild radiation area and you mutate. Suddenly you're not controlling five robots anymore. Would the robots then turn on you? It all depends on the robots. Sometimes they turn on you, sometimes they don't. Well, if they do, hopefully you'll mutate a cool power to compensate. Of course, you could always choose to start as a mutant and have one of these powers already. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. So obviously many of those abilities are similar to those found in D&D. Is there anything else worth mentioning that D&D players would find familiar? Armor. No, armor class is different too. No, pretty much that's it. Okay. Just a few of the abilities and some of the powers on the mutations list. Yeah. Did you have a skills list at all? For the characters? Never, never, ever. Fourth edition has skills, and they were put in much against my desire. Sometimes you get outvoted and stuff. Happens to the best of us. And then there's no class system to speak of, is there? Not at all. There is kind of a resemblance of class in the various creatures of the ship. In other words, you can become an Orlin and have two heads. And you can become a Venus flytrap. So kind of a character class, but not really. It's kind of like being an elf, you know. If you're an elf, you can spot secret doors and you're really good with a long sword. Well, if you're an Orlin, you're good in resisting mental attacks and a couple other things. So there are some skills with each one of the creatures that you can pick up by becoming those creatures. I remember Brian Bloom had an elephant because telekinesis was based on how much you could lift. So he liked being able to lift a lot. So he played an elephant. Yeah. And that's within the rules. Well, it's a mutant elephant, but yeah, that's within the rules. <laughs> now, okay, so imagine this. You, you send out a colonization ship that has a bunch of animals. Are you going to not send a pair of elephants on your colonization ship? Absolutely not. It has to have elephants. Doesn't it? Yes. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Okay, so you can play mutant animals as well. You'd mentioned the plant mutants and sort of the humanoid mutants, but not animal mutants yet. Yeah, I have a wonderful story. Okay, so I'm playing the game with the blooms. We're playtesting, and one of them wants to be a mountain gorilla. And I say, yeah, that's a great idea. They have great sight. And Kevin Bloom speaks up and says, no, Jim, you're wrong. Mountain gorillas have terrible vision. And I looked at Kevin, and I said, Kevin, they're called mountain gorillas, right? And he says, yeah. And I said, they're called mountain gorillas because they like the view. And that shut him up. <laughs> Fair enough. And so do you have all of these animals listed for people to choose from? I don't have any regular animals listed. Okay. It's up to the people to make their own ships. Gary filled his ships with different ducks and geese just because he liked ducks and geese. <laughs> well, that's a very interesting fact. Thank you for that. Yeah. Any creatures that you were particularly proud of? Well, I love the Orlans, the two-headed guys. They're lots of fun. <laughs> My favorite one. This is kind of a funny little story. Imagine, if you will, a one-inch tall mushroom, white mushroom. It's got two little beady eyes, and it's got a one-inch spear. And 20 of them are hopping down the trail towards you. And you irritate them and start stepping on them and start attacking them. A couple of them jump up and hit your chest and go into your chest, meld into the chest. And others turn into white spores. So you don't think anything of it. You kill 20 little dudes. That's fine. Hours later, six inch tall mushroom men, white mushrooms, beady little eyes, six inch tall spears come bouncing up. And naturally you kill them all because you know they're going to attack you. And a couple of them jump up and hit your chest and meld into your chest. You don't think anything of it. You don't feel bad. You don't hurt from it. Hours and days later, six foot tall white mushroom men come and attack you. They're six foot tall. They have six foot tall spears. They're dangerous. They do a lot of damage. You kill them. You crush them. You take care of them. And white spores fly everywhere. You don't think anything of it, but you're really happy that you killed those mushroom men because they were dangerous. Exactly one day later, 
you hear the thud on the earth and it goes thud thud you can't imagine what that is thud thud and you turn around and you see a 25 foot tall white mushroom man with a 25 foot tall spear and he attacks you for killing all of his brothers and sisters you have a brave battle some of you die some of you don't die and finally you kill the horrible creature after tremendous effort and the expenditure of lots of resources the next day out from your chest pop 10 little white mushroom men doing five points of damage per mushroom man and discover the real danger of little mushroom men that's my favorite creature nice that is a fun one i was thinking the player was going to mutate into some sort of mushroom covered creature of some kind nope nope but instead they pop out of you yeah and do terrible damage to you if you don't get all of them where they eventually become 25 feet tall is that the idea yes that is the idea it's just they're delicious so they have a hard time becoming that tall And for most of your creatures, were you going for creatures that were very different from sort of a fantasy setting? Did you have any sort of like dragons or anything in there? I have a Tyrannosaurus Rex I'm very fond of with purple scales. And he's totally resistant to laser beams. And is he something that we engineered before we left the planet? Is that the idea? He was in the embryo stage and the robots started uncorking all these embryos to try to bring the ship back to life. And he was in the mix. She was in the mix, pregnant. And then she mutated the purple scales. Because most of the weapons are laser weapons on the ship. There's lots of those. And I put a Tyrannosaurus Rex in every product I make. I just love the monster. That's awesome. I mean, obviously, the Tyrannosaurus Rex is a classic creature. And I also just love seeing dinosaurs and other real-life prehistoric monsters used in interesting ways and interesting settings as well. Oh, yeah, me too. Okay, so even though you present a fairly definitive concept for the overall ship, it's still up to the game man to develop and describe and like Gary's ducks in some ways personalize aspects of the interior environment is what you're saying. Yeah, let me give you another interesting little story. Please. Okay, so I'm designing the game and my starship I called the Warden. Why? Because my name is Ward. So I thought Warden, that's a great name for a starship. And as the years went on, everybody called their starship the Warden, which amazed me. I thought they'd all call the ship their last names, but nobody did. (laughs) I found it very surprising. So I have Gilligan's of Wardens out there in space. Yeah, you definitely do. So we were all supposed to come up with our own ships, and the Warden was just supposed to be your ship. It wasn't intended to be the habitual setting for the game. Yeah, no, I never intended at all. You know, like, you don't buy a boat, you know, and name it whatever was on the boat before. You put your name on it. You put a new name on it. I was told that it's bad luck to rename a boat. You're absolutely wrong. You gotta rename it, absolutely. Who wants a boat named Dead Cargo? Come on, think about what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose that is true. So, on the topic of the ship, that reminds me of a question I wanted to ask about the scope of the game. Metamorphosis Alpha was intended to bring role-playing into science fiction, but unlike D&D, which is very open-ended to all kinds of fantasy with no specific world, Metamorphosis Alpha is a very specific game with a definitive setting. Had you initially considered the idea of making the game a toolbox of science fiction tropes, the way that D&D is a toolbox of fantasy tropes? I have to tell you, that was never a thought in my head. Just keep in mind, it was the second role-playing game, so I didn't think of all of those fun different things i just wanted to make a science fiction game that was like DD. i was just out of college i wasn't the most knowledgeable person i was a big reader but it was a difficult task you know i had nothing to refer to but the brown box set which is difficult at best to read 
<laughs> okay, well, could you describe for us a little bit about the type of gameplay you had imagined for Metamorphosis Alpha? It is set up as kind of a dungeon crawl in space. Was that your intention, or was that a result of only having the brown box to reference? Yeah, I envisioned it being a dungeon, you know, very dungeon-like, and that you're exploring the area. Then all I had to do was make up the different geologies on each level. You make it sound so easy. That part was easy, let me assure you, compared to everything else. I suppose. So one difficulty in particular that I did want to ask you about was playtesting. When you were writing the game, you mentioned that you weren't living near Lake Geneva. You were living clear across the state in Prairie Duchesne. So how did you go about playtesting the game? With the guys there, I had a playtest group. We didn't meet on a regular basis. We met like once or twice a month. And it was different ages. There were adults in one group and kids in another group. So that was good. Okay. Do you recall any major changes or important developments that came out of the playtesting? I weakened a bunch of mutations. Some of them were just too powerful. Life Leech grabbed 20 hit points from everybody in a six-foot area, and that got changed to six, and that a new version got changed to one. So I weakened some of them. I remember, Gary, we were doing the Fire Giant module, and I used Magic Jar. I hope D&D talk doesn't bore people. No, go ahead, please. Okay, so we're doing the Fire Giant module, and I used Magic Jar, and I Magic Jarred the Queen of the Fire Giants. So I could make her do whatever I wanted. And so she started giving orders and started kicking giants out of the area. We started collecting all of her treasure. Really ticked off Carrie. So the next week, he said, Jim, uh, magic jar is a little different now. <laughs> I said, oh, Gary, how's it work now? Now you get in your magic jar and you see a bunch of glowing forms. You don't know who it is or what it is. So you could wind up going in a body that you don't want to go into. And so he changed Magic Jar just because I was lucky with the Queen of the Fire Giants. <laughs> I didn't think that was very fair myself, but he was doing that all the time. This is how Dromage started. We were down in the dungeon, and I really wanted a potion of flying. And I said, geez, man, I really want that potion of flying I have back in my room at the inn. And Gary says, well, Jim, you should make a spell that does that for you. And Dromage's instant summon was made, and I became Dramage from then on. That's Dramage is, of course, Jim Ward spelled backwards. Yes, I was aware that Dramage is your name backwards, and that a lot of the character names that appear, especially early on, are based on the original players' names and designers' names. I put Dramage in one of my products that wasn't a Wizards of the Coast product, and they sent me a cease and desist order and said they owned Dramage. So they own my name backwards. I don't think that's very fair. <laughs> that does seem highly questionable. It does! <laughs> they own your name back. Uh, that's funny to think about, though. I had to get rid of 5,000 products. I was very unhappy. Oh, wow. I'm sorry to hear that. That's much less funny now. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so as mentioned, you left before TSR was acquired and then never ended up working for Wizards after that? Never. But as you mentioned, you were granted the rights to Metamorphosis Alpha back by former colleagues at WotC, which until this conversation, I honestly thought Wizards just lost the game through some legal error. Because if you look at a game like Jeff Grubb's Marvel Phase Rip, outside of the Marvel characters, it's unclear who, if anyone, owns the rest of the game. Jeff did a great job with Marvel. I was very pleased. Oh yeah, it is quite an impressive game, the Universal Table especially. Indeed. And that system heavily influenced Zeb Cook's Amazing Engine. Yes. Which then, of course, you published a version of Metamorphosis Alpha using the Amazing Engine. Yes, they did. Is that a very different game from the original? No, no, it's just like Metamorphosis Alpha. Okay. The version that you published in the early 2000s, was that drastically different from the 70s version at all? Well, 
it was on a different theme. I was working more on the ship as opposed to the mutants and the mutations and things because I wanted to come out with books for those, but I didn't get a chance. Did you change any of the mechanics? No. Why? They're perfect. Okay. You're not supposed to say, okay. You're supposed to say, that's a little bit egotistical, isn't it, Jim? Well, you've been so humble so far. I just figured that. Okay. All right. All right. And, you know, if you think they're perfect, then maybe they're perfect. You're obviously a professional. I'm not really in a position they're to judge. They're pretty dang good, but they're, nothing's ever perfect. But it has lasted over 40 years. So that's a mark of something. Absolutely. The games obviously withstood the test of time, and that's something you should definitely be proud of. Which brings us to our next topic, future plans. You mentioned that you have a new book coming out detailing the Warden and all of its decks and even some new decks. Yes. And that's being published by... Troll Lord Games. Troll Lord Games. So listeners should stop by the Troll Lord site to pick up a copy. Beyond that, do you have any other future plans for Metamorphosis Alpha? I want to make that planet version. I would love to do that. Yeah, I think that could be a lot of fun to have the people who actually complete the journey then trying to colonize a whole planet full of your mutations. So hopefully that works out for you. We'll see, buddy. I think there's definitely a market for it. Okay. Any other upcoming projects that you wanted to mention? Troll Lords is going to come out in a couple months with a Pick a Path book. Are you familiar with the Pick a Path concept? I think I know what you mean, but it's probably the first time it's come up on this show. So it'd still be worth explaining if you don't mind. Okay. So you start reading the book and you discover that you're a paladin, a brave, bold paladin. And you're given a quest to go out and defeat evil. But the problem is you aren't told what evil or where evil. So you go out and you decide you throw a spear into the air. And the direction it lands is the way you're going to go. So as you're reading at the bottom of that page, it says the spear lands to the west. Turn to page 12. The spear lands to the east. Turn to page 7. The spear lands to the south. Turn to page 40. The spear lands to the west. Turn to page 46. And so you pick a direction. And as you're going through reading the book, you come to plot points. You come to very important points. And you have to make a choice. So you go west and you come to this huge cave. And there's lots of other places to go. But the choice is go in the cave, turn to page 19, or go around the cave, turn to page 24. So you take a choice. You decide to go in the cave and you get attacked by horrible piercers. And you do combat with the piercers. And that gives you choices. Fight the largest piercer, fight the smallest piercer, fight the one that looks the weakest. You get just a bunch of choices in the book, all through the book. And eventually you'll come to a good end or a bad end. So if you come to a good end, you're going to be encouraged to read the book again and do it differently. Maybe go west instead of south. But if you come to a bad end, it irritates you and you want to get in there and find a good end. So you start over again and you can play this book over and over again hundreds of times and never take the same path. It's fun. TSR made a lot of money doing choose your own adventure books. Nice. Does it ever involve a dice roll mechanic? No, no, no dice. You just pick. You're just, you're given a situation and you're given two or three or four different choices in that situation. I did a bunch of pick a path books, choose their own adventure books at TSR. I did a Conan book and a couple Marvel books. You can't get them anymore. Nobody sells them. So Trollards wanted to start it up again. So this first one is a test. Excellent. Well, we'll have to keep an eye out for that one as well. Doom of the Paladin. Doom of the Paladin. Yep, that's the name of it. It'll be on my Facebook page whenever it comes out. Okay, sounds good. That might be the answer to my next question then too. Where should listeners go to stay updated on your work? I'm Facebookable. Perfect. Okay. And then where would you direct listeners who want to pick up a copy of Metamorphosis Alpha or any of your other games? Well, Troll Lord Games and the Goodman Games and the Fireside Creations. All three of those sell lots of my product and have lots of product. Excellent. We'll definitely include links for listeners to Troll Lord Games, Goodman Games, and Fire 
Fireside Creations then in our show notes. Well, thank you very much. I do appreciate that. Absolutely. We appreciate you taking the time to speak with us tonight. That's all the questions I had for you then. All right. Very good. Great. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Did you have any parting words before we close up? You know what? Drizzle, drazzle, drazzle, drone. Time for this boy to go home. Thank you again, Jim, for stopping by the Guild Hall to share with us your stories of adventures, both from the good old days at TSR and the adventures that await us in the far future when humanity attempts to colonize the stars. While not everything went according to plan for the passengers aboard the Warden, their ill-fated journey did succeed in transporting all of role-playing's most important features to settle a new, far-off home in science fiction pioneering a trail for many more games to follow. Metamorphosis Alpha carries aboard all of our favorite elements of classic role-playing, allowing you to experience the dungeon-crawling, sword-and-sorcery excitement of the original RPG in wildly strange environments full of malfunctioning robots, bizarre mutations, and the high-tech artifacts of your ancestors. We believe all listeners should pick up a copy of Metamorphosis Alpha, and see if your game group can complete the voyage the Warden began many generations ago. Before we get off course, we at DDG Pod need to pay our dues. Theme music for our show is the song High Fantasy by the band Gygax. Additional music in this episode was provided by Hayden Folker, Logo design for our show was done by Elijahnist. Art for this episode was created by Hodag RPG. Special thanks this week to Charlie at Negative Modifier Podcast, Jeff Grubb, S.L. McClellan, and Rikolas Weishaupt for their help in completing this episode. And as always, thank you to all listeners. We at DEG Pod have missed you over the last few months, and we are glad to be back in action. To help ensure that the show continues, please leave a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you are interested in keeping the Guild Hall open on a more regular schedule, we have set up an account on Coffee. that's ko-fi.com. A link can be found in the show notes, and all donations are greatly appreciated. Other great ways to help? are by simply telling friends and fellow tabletop gamers about DDG Pod, and sharing any episodes you like on social media. Even without releasing new content, our total number of downloads doubled since this time last year, and we can't thank our guild members enough for keeping our attendance high. So, please, keep spreading the word. There are plenty of potential DDG inductees out there waiting to hear from you. That concludes our 12th episode of Dungeon Designers Guild. So, 
all you dual-brained Orlins and mutant flytraps, we escaped again. But remember, next time, we might not be so lucky. <laughs>